Hi, welcome to Forbes India's The Startup Fridays podcast. I'm Hari Arakli, tech editor at Forbes India. In these podcasts, we'll bring you conversations with entrepreneurs who are finding opportunities in solving a variety of problems in multiple areas. We will also talk to investors from venture capital companies and other folks who are playing a significant role in India's maturing startup scene. You can find a new episode every Friday evening. You can also find us live on Instagram every Friday morning. Stay safe and happy listening. Our guest today is Amit Anand, who is founding partner at Jungle Ventures in Singapore. Previously, Amit uh, held executive positions in sales and business development roles at uh, Progress Software, STT Communications-backed uh, Singapore-based Elipua. I hope I'm correct, uh, pronouncing that right. And uh, earlier at Tata Infotech Limited in India. In uh, 2006, Amit uh, turned entrepreneur himself when he founded uh, Etamina Studios, a Singapore-India-based animation studio. He founded Jungle Ventures uh, with Anurag Srivatva in 2012. Amit is a Kaufman Fellow, one of the earliest from Southeast Asia, and currently also a member of the Singapore Government's Advisory Council on the Ethical Use of Artificial Intelligence and Data. Amit holds a bachelor's degree with a major in computer science. Amit, fantastic that you were able to make time for this conversation. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adi. Pleased to be here. Excellent. So, of course, uh, you're a well-known VC firm, Jungle Ventures, and uh, many noteworthy investments in India and across Asia. Uh, but for people who may not be uh, familiar with Jungle Ventures and your work, maybe you could start by giving us a brief history of the path that brought you to the beginnings of your VC author, and we'll go from there. Sure, happy to chat. Actually, I'm I'm quite a late boomer in my in my professional career. So, in that sense, uh, if I can be of any help or inspiration to people that uh, you know you, you know you should not uh, bow into peer pressure then so be it uh, you know although i started working in 1998 uh, and and my first job was one of uh, with one of the tata group companies i would say that my uh, journey the real true journey of what i want to do uh, only started in 2010 uh, when i when we started jungle uh, you know before that i have you know as you kind of pointed out I have done a fair amount of roles in in the software industry, a lot of zero to one roles. And then I jumped industry completely and, and started something in the animation and gaming industry. Uh, that's where the startup bug kind of caught me. Uh, I failed miserably at it, as you would imagine, going from software to animation and gaming. Uh, but really, uh, that's when uh, I started exploring what would be my next startup which ends up being jungle. Yeah. Uh, how did you and uh, Anurag uh, get together and uh, what was the investment opportunity you saw at that time, 2012? So Anurag and I got together because of animation actually. So the, the few common traits that we have, one of them is that I built an animation company uh, and uh, scaled it and then the great financial crisis happened. So I had to shut it down. So I had a lot of learnings from it. And uh, when I when I was introduced to Anurag, he had just invested in an animation company, or I think kind of co-founded an animation company. And so somebody just put us together to say, "Listen, you probably should talk to each other." And you know, really, what he wanted uh, for me to do was to tell him what not to do, uh, given my experience with the animation business. 
but i think when we when we got together what what started appealing uh, you know what was common for for both of us was really this ambition that there should be more global success stories that come out of asia you know we work for a lot of large global companies and help them expand into this region but you know if you think about the top 100 brands in asia, in the world you know we are probably have five or 10 brands in there and so we said you know this 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 drives both me and anurag and it became the genesis of jungle we said listen through the platform of venture capital let's find the next generation of founders that through our networks and our experience and a little bit of gray hair we can help uh you know realize their potential of of building a company that lasts and potentially building a company that will be part of the top 100 globally hmm 2012 uh, was your first fund uh, give us a brief history of your funds uh, to date uh, what's the quantum of investments uh, deployed or committed overall by jungle in your major markets so a quick history there uh, in 2012 when we raised a 10 million dollar fund in southeast asia embarrassingly we were the largest early stage fund uh and uh, also um we were the first fund that said i don't care if it's 10 million dollars but we want to invest across southeast asia and india our belief back then was that these two ecosystems are converging both from a consumer behavior perspective and more importantly from an entrepreneur uh ambitions perspective and it was fascinating to see that eventually in 2015 or 16 i think sequoia made the leap as well that uh, they should invest in both markets out of one fund lightspeed has now made the move ggv china has made the move but you know hand on our heart we were the first ones there uh, since then we've obviously grown to be the largest homegrown vc that uh, cut across southeast asia and india today we manage about 600 million uh in assets and and that's growing uh, and, you know every two and a half odd years we raise a new fund and look to find companies that we can help kind of scale regionally or globally and and tell us about uh, some of your uh, noteworthy investments of course many in the startup scene and tech scene in india would know about zip dial and the exit to twitter which is famous uh, but you have many other uh, well known uh, startups that you have invested along the way so tell us about some of them Yeah we're certainly more under the radar than than others uh you know it it's um, it's something that you know inspires us to continue to build uh, be focused on building but you're right uh, if i look at the last 3 years i you know my sense is we've got an amazing cohort of companies we were the seed check in moglix uh, that turned unicorn uh, in fact rahul the founder used to be at google here in singapore and he walked in our offices and he came and said you know I, i'm going to build a company someday and i want to know what to do and we said let's sit down and chat about what you want to build and that resulted in today which is an amazing success story uh, live space we were the first seed check uh, and and more recently we've invested in companies like turtle mint where we are helping them expand in southeast asia now we led the round for a leap finance which is helping students kind of from an overseas education perspective we did city mall in the in the past we've done better place vayana you know so my sense is we are averaging maybe an investment uh, a month or or an every alternate month our focus tends to though be much more concentrated we like to invest in companies that can dominate not just india but much larger opportunities with our capital and support and zipdial is a great example of that one of the co-founders 
through our support, moved to Singapore, expanded in Indonesia and Philippines and in Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. We introduced them to Twitter, Facebook and many others, which eventually led to the acquisition. Although, you know, in the in today's scheme of things, that acquisition looks small. But, you know, those are the people on the shoulders that we are all standing today. Uh, so we are hoping many more will come. Mm. Uh, which are some of the uh, sectors that you favored uh, historically? And, uh, uh, you know, tell us about uh, your most recent fund. What are the areas you're looking at, especially in India? Yeah, so I would say um, fintech, e-commerce and SaaS tend to be the three big themes for us. My sense is every other VC probably says the same thing. So I don't know if I'm saying anything new here. Um, what I would argue is that we are fairly thematic about how we go about investing. Uh, today, majority of our consumer internet investments are focused on millennials that cut across both India and Southeast Asia. You know, LiveSpace is a great example of that. It's helping the 30-year-olds design their homes sitting online as against to having to walk to, you know, an interior designer or a contractor or, you know, trying to deal with all of them. If you look at uh, Leap Finance, it's enabling uh, young and, and progressive students who want to get global education, get a one-stop shop platform for that. So it's FinTech, LiveSpace is e-commerce, and then SaaS, of course, is there. So, so my sense is we are fairly thematic. I, I would say currently the areas where we're spending a lot of time are, you know, is continues to be in FinTech. We are fascinated with how millennials will think about money, uh, how they will think about saving, investing, growing, um, you know, obviously, direct-to-consumer brands is quite the fad, but we were very early investors in that. LiveSpace was invested in 2015, which is a direct-to-consumer home living brand. Uh, we did Pomelo in, in Southeast Asia in 2015, which is the largest fast fashion direct-to-consumer brand. So D2C remains a big area. And then SaaS, I would say our, our, our uh, barrier to entry or our benchmark is pretty high. We do like to invest only in companies that we think can be global. We are one of the first partners, uh, we are the first firms in the region that uh, actually appointed a full-time partner in Boston back in 2015 because we could see that a lot of founders have great ideas and great products, but they just don't know how to cross over to the US as a market. And this gentleman has done, you know, three big stints and taken zero to billion dollar companies. So it's a, you know, SaaS continues to be a good theme for us. Yeah, I guess now the India to US playbook has, is becoming much more standard and with one famous IPO recently as well. And, uh, um, so Jungle comes across as a fairly sector agnostic VC firm, if I might put it that way. Um, therefore, would you see yourself as a generalist VC firm as folks like to talk about it in the industry? Or do you see yourself as a team of uh, deep domain expertise in specific areas? who are collectively able to cover many promising areas. So, I mean, this is this is a, a maybe also a, a guidance to budding VCs, uh, you know, that are thinking about becoming a VC. From an early stage perspective, you can either be one domain expert, you can be the best fintech fund, or you can be the best health tech fund, or you can be the best deep tech fund or SaaS fund, or, you can be great at company building. And if I think about early stage investing, my preference, and I would argue uh, every successful VC's preference has always been to be the best at company building and leave the domain expertise to the founders. The reality is that 
if I know more about a sector than the founder I'm backing, then I should be really, really worried. Uh, we need them to inspire us on where the industry is going, that they come from or what they're thinking about solving. What we can bring to them is, you know, is the cheat sheet, is the experience of having watched, you know, 3000 companies in a year and, 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 you know, seen many of them succeed and many of them fail and, you know, bring those pattern matching to the founders. So I think that's where Jungle's experience is very, very strong, both from our own backgrounds and then what we've done with our companies. And that's why we've been able to invest across the board. We invested in a two-wheeler EV company in Vietnam now. I have no clue about electric vehicles, to be frank. And I told that to my LPs. But what I know is how to save these entrepreneurs from hiring mistakes and go-to-market mistakes and how to build a great cap table. And I think that thing applies across industries and is pretty consistent uh, value proposition. Yeah, I, I want to come back to this idea of what uh, the VC firm brings to the founder beyond the funding. but. Uh, want to get a couple of other uh, questions uh, out of the way. Uh, uh, you would have probably seen multiple cycles of going from initial investments to exits, partial exits, and so on. Um, can you talk about a couple of your uh, most memorable exits? Yeah, that's like choosing, uh, asking you to choose, a, asking someone to choose their best or favorite kid. Um, you know, we've been very, very fortunate. I would say uh, through both design and environment, we've had one exit every year. We've sold companies to Intuit, we've sold companies to Nasper, we sold company to Twitter, to Rakuten, to, you know, a Tokyo company now, to uh, Australian venture now. So I, I think we've been fairly successful in trade sales. Uh, it's gonna be a first for us where one of our companies is now going public. And um, I had promised myself that I won't be emotional about it, but I'm fairly emotional about it. Uh, as I told you earlier, I like to create and, uh, you know, venture capital is a great way to scale the ability to create new things and, and to see this company go from seed to potentially IPO now uh, is going to be uh, icing on the cake for sure. So I'm pretty excited about Credivo's NASDAQ listing next year. It's also, by the way, going to be the first seed to IPO, uh, the fastest seed to IPO across India and Southeast Asia. I think they started in 2016 and they're going IPO in 2021 in, in NASDAQ. Uh, so, so that's definitely one that that excites, uh, is currently top of mind and is exciting. And, uh, people love to ask, uh, and, and I guess I include myself in that when I say people ask VCs about uh, the so-called anti-portfolio. And uh, so any startups that you passed on, which you see have become really big today? Yeah, so, so you know, I, thanks, to my, thanks to my parents and, and I would say middle-class upbringing in India, I do not have a tendency to, to look back. Uh, you know, I have a very strong belief in my heart that whatever has happened has happened for a reason. It's either my destiny or a learning. And so I've, you know, I've, we've been very conscious of creating a culture of not looking back and not feeling that you missed on something, but rather focusing on what we can take from it. So quite frankly, uh, and you can ask anybody in jungle, we've never thought of creating an anti-portfolio page or, or, you know, creating a list of companies where we feel we missed on it. Uh, in fact, whenever a, a colleague of mine brings up a discussion, I, I try and cut it short and I said, this is not the way we have to look forward. So I'm sorry to disappoint you or be politically correct or whatever you want to take from it. But the reality is I always look forward. I, I feel what is meant to be happens to us. And 
uh, what is not meant to be is is meant for somebody else, and I'm excited that everybody has got unicorns in their portfolio, and everybody's got great companies in their portfolio. Uh, we don't look back. Fair enough. So another point that I'm definitely going to revisit uh, parents and uh, upbringing uh, maybe down the line uh, when we uh, when I hope to talk more specifically about you. Uh, but in the world of uh, VCs, uh, of course, venture capital companies talk about. Uh, uh, having a thesis and uh, looking for great founders, especially at the early stage, uh, they talk about the founders' pedigree, you know, being given a lot of weightage. Uh, I I wanted to ask you about uh, uh, how conscious uh, VC firms need to be in, about what they bring to the founder. Uh, what is your approach to that? Yeah, so I I was on this panel in Hong Kong and there was a very, very successful VC from China that I asked this question coincidentally. And uh, he's he's he was their firm is not top five, but they've still managed to raise billions of dollars and make billions of dollars for their LPs. And I was like, how do you compete in the market? Like, you know, what is your value proposition to the founder? And he, he and he told me something that is stuck in my head. He said, listen, founders look for only two things. They're either looking for a brand that can pay them whatever they want or they're looking for a value partner. I am not the brand, he said. I don't give them whatever price they want. I would typically not give them the best offer on the table. But in the industries that I invest, I know I am the strongest value partner. That, you know, they, even if the fund, even if the company ends up raising money from a Tiger Global or a Sequoia or whoever else, they will still take my money because they know that I'm going to do a lot more value creation for them. And, and it kind of stuck to me. And, you know, this debate is is forever going on. Like, you know, are you a value adding investor or are you just a financial investor? And, and you know, what I've learned from my experiences, founders don't care. Quite frankly, founders will take money from people that will just give them money. And founders will also take money from people that will add value to them. Our philosophy has been let's true to be ourselves. Let, let's true. Let's be true to ourselves. Who are we? We are company builders. If we see a relationship where you can already see that in the first meeting there is a flowing of ideas on how the business can be made better, then we feel more excited versus a founder coming to us and we are looking at each other and going, "This guy knows everything. I'll still put the money, but uh, maybe we won't be as excited about it." I think the feedback to, to VCs is that don't get caught up in the two worlds. You know, be true to yourself. Are you a value-adding investor or are you just a financial investor? And, and you know, don't try and fake the other side because it generally doesn't work over the long term. Mm. This approach of uh, focusing on uh, building companies, uh, has that helped you in your experience uh, uh, for Jungle Ventures to stand out uh, given that the VC world is pretty competitive now? Actually, Hari, that's a phenomenal question. And, and quite frankly, for the first uh, maybe three or four years, I had my doubts. I, I remember a founder sending a message to my co-founder saying, you've taken a very bold positioning in the market. It's going to be very challenging, but it's worth it. And uh, it was tough initially. It was not just us. We had to convince our, you know, the new employees that were joining Jungle, our LPs, the founders that we're backing to have this build to last philosophy in life. And, uh, uh, but I would say that I would argue that today I am seeing that, that sort of, uh, that the tides have turned, the tables have turned, 
I have founders when I am having conversations with them saying, listen, I had visited the website and what really inspired me was the build to last thought process. You know, I feel that that's missing from the ecosystem. And I, I want to take this opportunity to thank Mr. Tata. Uh, he's uh, He's been a special advisor to us. He's been a dear mentor to me and Anurag. And in one of these conversations, I, you know, I was, he was very quiet as always, you know, he listens and then you know, after two hours of you talking, he drops you one nugget of gold that you got to, you know, take it to heart. And in one such meeting, he didn't say anything. And I was like, Mr. Tata, you know, you're, something is bothering you, you know, or what, something like that. I think I mentioned to him and he said, you know, what worries me the most about the startup ecosystem is that nobody is building a company to be here forever. Everybody's building a company because they want to either be in Google's camp or Tencent's camp or SoftBank's camp. You know, who's going to build the next startup group? And that really defined, that was a defining moment in, in, in Jungle's history where philosophically we just aligned ourselves to always only back companies and founders that are building to last. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, a question that maybe uh, aspiring entrepreneurs might be interested in if they're looking at Jungle VC for backing. Uh, how do you decide between one great founder and another great founder when you know that you want to invest in only one of them? So Hari, I'm a failed entrepreneur and until I failed, I thought that I was the you know best thing since Cheesecake because every day, every hour, I would have the best idea on the planet. And even today, that's the case. I, I, I think I can churn out ideas at the, at the speed of, uh, you know, McDonald's French fries. But, you know, when I failed as an entrepreneur, I realized that execution trumps ideation. And so at Jungle, the difference that we look for between operator A, founder A and founder B or anybody that we work with and is around execution is we are looking for uh, leading indicators on why what you've done in execution makes you stand out. You know, numbers can eventually all look the same, but what's the history behind the numbers? What decisions work? What didn't work? How do you think about org building? We spend obscene amount of time with founders talking about those things and I would say that I would argue that that's made us more successful. We've created one unicorn per quarter this year. Uh, in the last uh, eight years of investing, our loss ratio is less than 3%. That's hardly venture capital-like, but our you know unicorn creation is venture capital-like. It's because we focus a lot on execution. So if you're a founder coming in to talk to us, yes, I want to be excited about your idea, but where I really want you to spend time, 80% of your time, is to share with us on on your execution success, on your execution failures, and what you've taken from it. Uh, did that uh, influence your uh, uh, decision to uh, turn to venture capital? Tell us a bit about what prompted you to get into venture capital. Yeah, it was it was actually a fairly uh, pivotal moment in my career. As I told you, I'm a late boomer, and uh, you know, for a very long time, I just went with the flow. I was fortunate that my parents were able to give me an education that could sustain that. And on the other hand, there was always a safety net. You know, we were not rich or anything, a classic middle class upbringing, but parents always uh, encouraged us to, to pursue things. Uh, and I think, you know, when I when I uh, shut down Etamina Studios, uh, it was a fairly discouraging moment in, in anybody's journey. And certainly it was in mine, you know, you lost this opportunity to create something big, you you know, you had to fire employees, you lost your money, you you know, you lost your parents' money, and then you know, 
I always tell this to entrepreneurs that all that is fine, but never lose your father-in-law's money. I've done that uh, cardinal sin as well. And so it was it was a fairly um, negative period in my life, but uh, thankfully I always look forward. And uh, but it, I had to stabilize myself, and I decided to kind of go back to the corporate world and look for a job to give me a couple of years of stability before thinking again on what to do. Uh, but uh, you know, Hari, that was uh, interesting. That you know, I spent I would say about a year, and I would have applied to five thousand jobs, and I applied to everything and anything under the planet. You know, I applied to be a teacher. I applied to go back into sales and marketing. I applied to be a, a you know a, an investment banker, and I, I never got an interview for a year. And uh, then I got one interview, which was phenomenal. It it was the most exciting, uh, you know, point in that time because uh, that job requirement uh, they had listed down prerequisites as typically you do. And under the prerequisites, they had asked for you know if you have experience in one out of these two companies, then you'll be uh, the topmost candidate for us. Uh, and by the way, I had built both the companies in Southeast Asia and Asia for them, for those companies, for those brands. And I was like, this job is designed for me. And maybe God was waiting, you know, uh, to bring this to me. And so I went for the interview, and I came out of that interview, and it was one of the most miserable feelings I ever had. Firstly, I never got the job. Secondly, it it was the moment when I realized I really don't want to do this. I, I don't want to work in a corporate job again. And that's when I committed myself to finding my next startup. I explored many many things, and then started realizing that this whole Need to create can be uh, you know can have a significantly larger impact through the root of venture capital. So Jungle became my second startup, and hopefully this is built to last. Mm. Yeah, let's uh, maybe I want to ask you to dive into that a little bit more. What are some of the biggest uh, takeaways uh, from your uh, career that aspiring VCs can learn from? Yeah, I mean this question comes a lot to us, as you can imagine. A uh, lot of our, a uh, lot of young people who want to get into venture capital, a lot of uh, uh, you know lateral movement. People want to cross over industries, come to venture capital. So, you know, I've had the opportunity to talk and and hopefully guide few people through this. Uh, what's interesting for people out there to know is that there is no set path to be a VC, uh, which is both uh, an opportunity and a challenge. You know, it's not like you can sign up for an MBA and you know that once you come out of that MBA, all venture funds are going to be lining up to interview you, and at least you'll get some job. Uh, so you know, there is the challenge. The opportunity is that you know it means that anybody can be a, a venture capitalist. You know, I remember meeting a, a lawyer in New York who has been one of the most successful venture capitalists, uh, and I was like, how come a lawyer is a venture capitalist? Uh, so, so I think. As a VC, typically what we do, if I just abstract this at the most highest level, is really we play three roles and play play those roles all in one, which is very rare to execute. We play as a coach, we play as a captain, and we also have to be a player. And I'll explain this to you. When do we be a coach? I think majority of the time we be a coach. A founder sits down with us and talks to us and says, "Say, listen, this is the problem I'm facing. How do you think I need to?" Uh, deal with this problem, or you know, what can you tell me that can help me solve this problem? Right? It could be a personal problem, it could be an organizational problem, it could be a tactical problem, it could be a strategic problem. And in this case, you're mostly acting like a coach. You're, you're you know, if you give them the solution, then you you've not done your job. You need to 
you need to bring in the learning skill set in them to know how to solve this problem by themselves, right? So you're playing a lot of that coach, and it's not easy. Uh, the second role that he plays of a captain is that as an active early stage investor, not just the founders, but the other follow on investors are looking to you for guidance, are looking for you to take big decisions. Uh, you know, quite frankly, uh, just yesterday we were on a call and uh, the co-investors and us were discussing about whether we should put this company on an M&A path or do we think we can rebuild this company. And I fear for people who think that venture capital is easy. It's one of the hardest decisions you can take on behalf of somebody else. Uh, so you have to be a captain. You have to know and live with the decisions you take. And then, you know, thirdly, you have to be a player uh, because shit hits the roof all the time. And so you need to jump in, roll up your sleeves and actually operate alongside the founder and solve the problems tactically. And my suggestion is if your career has given you the opportunity to learn all these three skills and you feel that you can do this effectively and still go to, you know, go at night and sleep in bed, then you are meant to be a VC. And it doesn't matter whether you're a 24 year old today or a 50 year old, you should jump into venture capital. But if you've not gotten exposure to aspects of these three things, then I would argue that it's better you, for you to build more professional skill sets before you jump into venture capital. Mm. On that note, who are some of the um, venture investors that you really respect? So, so first and foremost, uh, we are very, very thankful to the Axel India team. Uh, Subrata and Prashant, who are the founders of Axel India, are good friends of my co-founder. And when we were starting the journey, they were always there for us. Uh, I would say that a lot of mistakes in life uh, we say we are saved because of you know checking in with them. Uh, and similarly to them, uh, you know I'm part of the Kaufman Fellow Network. In you know whether it is and Recents and Sequoias, and there's something to learn from all of these guys. And so just like any other founder would look to many entrepreneurs and take different learnings, I would argue that we've also done the same in the past, but we've tried to bring our own uh, taste to it. I mean, Axel in India, probably every fund does 50 investments. You know, we do 10 or 15 investments. We are very different. Uh, but uh, certainly I would argue, I, I would say that uh, uh, over the last eight years, if there's something that we've done well is to listen to, you know, people who've gone ahead of us and one should do more of that. Hmm. Uh, you've spoken uh, a couple of times about uh... Uh, your parents uh, so want to ask you a little bit more about that uh, do you recall what your earliest memory is in terms of what you wanted to do in life uh, actually not really uh, you know I, I remember at one point I wanted to be a taxi driver so I don't know if that counts because every kid who loves to drive feels that that's the best profession in life you know to drive 24 by 7 uh, you know, I, at, at, at some point I, I uh, flirted with the idea of being a pilot, but as I said, I think not until 2010 did I really arrive at what I wanted to be. Uh, and uh, I'm thankful to the environment that allowed me the flexibility to do that. I think India has benefited a lot of from the generation of our parents who've created the platform for all of us to explore. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, uh, sorry to disappoint you, but uh, not really. What did your parents do and uh, what were some of the biggest influences that you remember in your childhood and growing up years in the context of uh, work and career and so on? So, you know, I take a lot of my, or in fact, all of my work ethics from my father. Uh, 
and uh, he has been the single most inspiration for that. He he joined Indian Oil Corporation as a drum pusher, even though he was a mechanical engineer and a very good one at it. But you know, those were the days where there were no jobs. And through his determination and and capabilities and loyalty, he grew up the ranks to eventually retire as the most senior executive director of Indian Oil Corporation. And uh, so, you know, I grew up seeing him, uh, you know, have this work ethic, which is driven through determination, is driven through, you know, getting the job done, having no ego. Uh, I've seen him, you know, leave at midnight, at, you know, at 2 a.m. because there was a fire in some plant somewhere in Turbay. And, you know, although it's not his uh, job, he's there to solve for it. And that's, you know, that's essentially what defines my work ethic. And the, I would say, they argue the work ethic of everybody at Jungle uh, is that, you know, it's always the V before the I. Uh, my mom, obviously, and, and for many, I guess, has been, you know, a phenomenal spiritual influence. You know, she's always, uh, you know, given this learning to, to us as kids that whatever is happening with you is always happening for your own good. And I know, you know, a lot of parents say it and we all think like, yeah, you know, it's another cheesy line that you're throwing on me. But, uh, you know, when, when dark days come upon you, those are things that you go back and think about and, and it helps you snap out of it. So it, it's, it's a philosophy which defines jungles, ideology and anti-portfolio as well. You know, why look back? Uh, whatever happened was for our good. And I think it's kept us in good street. So certainly that aspect of uh, our behavior comes from somewhat my mother's influence. Yeah, I mean, a related question is uh, something that I have been asking uh, my guests uh, at least for the last few episodes. Um, you talked about coming out of an interview feeling utterly miserable and deciding not going, getting into a corporate job. So uh, was there a low point in your career? I mean, from the time you started out uh, uh, in, the corp in your first corporate job all the way through now, was there a low point? And maybe you can follow up uh, talking about what has been the high point so far. So, you know, with, with a little bit of gray hair now, uh, the way I think about this is different. And I try and tell all my nephews and nieces to, to also do that, but I know they won't because I was the same when I was 20 something year old. Is I think every day in life you go through a lot of low points and high points. I don't think there should be any one big low point or one big high point. Every day has multiple you know instances of that and and if you can make yourself emotionally strong to not get too tied up into either of those then then you're actually demonstrating a trait of this most successful people the most successful people are not emotionally connected to their successes and failures they are connected to the journey of success and failures and so for me and and i'm being extremely honest hand on my heart as i think back on my last whatever number of years of operating i find it very hard to define one low point or one high point because you know the emotional connection to either of those over the years i've been able to kind of uh, uh, isolate myself from and i will encourage all those young people there is many opportunities to feel low about something but if you step back and think in the day you probably have been low for many many other things but you've gotten out of it then why stick on this particular low issue so so focus on kind of getting out of that dip and uh, 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 rather, because there will be many dips and many highs every day. Uh, so a few questions which I, I like to call rapid fire, which just means that answer them quickly in one or two sentences. Don't think about them too much. Uh, first one is, 
Tell us about uh, one thing in your career that's not uh, on your official resume. And by the way, this question I got from Vibhav Vagarwal at uh, Lightspeed when he suggested that this is an interesting question. Uh, anyway, just a trivia. Mm. So, so I think I, I, I made my first money selling auto rickshaws. Uh, for a for a computer engineer eventually in life and all as a summer job selling auto rickshaws was a really interesting learning about who I am and what I enjoyed so that's definitely not on my resume okay professionally uh, name one person who's left a deep impression on you and uh, why I think I've touched on this already it's definitely Mr. Tata and and the entire build to last is uh, inspired and dedicated to him uh, one book that you keep returning to so, so it's this. It's the I, I I don't return to it as much in the sense I don't go back and read it, but there's a very short book that I encourage a lot of people that are in their lows to read. It's called The Dip. It's a very old book by Seth Godin. My sense is people will finish it in one hour, and it's a book that taught me on how uh, people who are the most successful in their industry or who are at the top or pinnacle of their industry are not people who are the most smartest or not the people who work the hardest or not people who have some cheat sheet to get there. It's just people that stick through the dip. You know, I, I used to always think, you know, hey, from 1998 to 2010, I've not achieved anything in life. I'm bright, I'm smart, I've got all the opportunities. And I realized it was like, you know, whenever there was a dip, I would quit. I would not see through that dip. And, and, and so the dip has influenced a lot and it also taught me that generally if you quit a dip it's nothing wrong with it it actually means that you're not as passionate about it as you thought but for something that you're really passionate about the likelihood is that you won't quit the dip and you'll come out of it and you'll see the high so i would i would say that you know whenever i feel a slight bit of low i would just think out of the book and i'll about the book and i'll get out of it awesome uh, great advice i think uh, what does money mean to you in one or two sentences so, so two things. I, I think definitely money is a means to get to a point that allows you the freedom to do things that can create positive energy in your life on a day in day out basis. So certainly one has to think about money uh, to get to that point. And then the second point maybe as equally important or not if not more is and I think it was Sadhguru who mentioned this if I'm not wrong. He said listen at some point you got to sit down take a pen, take a paper and write down how much money is enough. And you'll be surprised how much this little exercise is a massive effort. You know, you sit down, you say, you know what, you know, 50 lakhs is enough. And then you'll be like, no, why is 50 lakhs enough? But I want that, I want that. Then you'll be like, okay, $1 million. And there'll be no math behind $1 million. Then you challenge yourself. And, and you know, so his guidance is, is being, which really, it was a very interesting insight. He said, listen, whatever that number, I'm not being judgmental about the number. You can pick $100 million, you can take a billion dollars, you can pick $100,000, but pick a number. And then agree with yourself that once you reach that number, after that, money is not going to drive your decisions. Because, you know, a lot of people say money should not drive your decisions. No, I think that's all not pragmatic. Money should drive your decisions to a point where you get that freedom to then chase things which may drive more energy in your life and other people's life. But, you know, you can say that you won't be able to get there unless you sit down and write what that number is for you. Uh, one important uh, thing that you never start your day without can be an activity, a habit, uh, even a beverage. 
yeah, I'm very poor at this. My mom and you know my mentors, my friends, they you know I, I see they all get up in the morning or pray and do you know or be grateful or go to and do exercise. I'm one of the worst people to kind of give this advice. But one thing maybe which has become a habit more now is is getting up and just saying thank you. Uh, somehow it's it's uh, it's stuck, and it's uh, it's quite liberating actually. Uh, your favorite hack to get yourself out of a funk? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe I'm coming across as too optimistic, but over the years I've been able to just, as I said, uh, get out of the dips faster. Uh, uh, but uh, what 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 has helped behind that is not getting too emotional about the highs, uh, because you get once you get emotional about the highs, you tend to get very uh, stuck in the dips. So maybe that. Is to is to not get too excited with the highs first in the first place. Okay, last quick question: uh, one city that you would love to live in? Oh wow! Okay, yeah, that's an interesting one, and and uh, it's a personal dream of mine that at some point in life, I can uh, actually go and live in a different city every six months. Uh, so you know, I'm a, I'm a huge traveler, but what I've realized is that two day trip, three day trip, or even a week's trip is never enough to get to really breathe the city and and live the life of the people there so i'm hoping that jungle gives me the opportunity to get to that point where every 6 months i'm living in a city uh, but 6 months and not more than that not less than that excellent uh, wonderful conversation amit uh, thank you again for making time for this really appreciate it and i definitely hope to keep the conversation going yeah thanks for having me here and thanks for the folks that have stuck around to uh, to hear me out i mean obviously Uh, at any given point just feel follow to you know uh, to to come to the jungle page and look for us and and we'll be happy to also get connected and talk more of these experiences so thanks for the opportunity so that was uh, amit anand at uh, uh, jungle ventures in singapore uh, you can follow him uh, uh, using the instagram handle at @jungle.vc you can also find him on twitter and linkedin that's it for this week's startup friday's conversation I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, wherever you are listening to us, I hope you're staying safe and doing well. Have a great Friday evening and a wonderful weekend ahead.